Good morning. Today we're going to read Psalm 19, uh, which is if you're using one of the Black Church Bibles on page 545. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet together today, knowing that we are unified in your love. Father, there's so much turmoil, fighting, and division around the world, including in our own country. We ask, Lord, for your peace to prevail, and we pray that people may see the light of the gospel and the love of Jesus in us, that they too may come to experience and know your love. Thank you, Lord, for your word which reveals yourself to us. We ask that you would be with James now as he helps us see that we can trust you and your word, the Bible. Open our hearts to your word that we might discover anew how wonderful and glorious you are. By the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this psalm tells of the mighty works of God's hands and is all about the ways God reveals himself to us. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right. Well, good morning again. Welcome back to this ongoing series that we have this term on what you want to know. Uh, if you're visiting here with us, what we did in term two uh, was we got people to nominate different topics that they would like us to preach upon. And then in term three, we collated them. Uh, sorry, in the end of term two, we collated them uh, and had everyone vote on them. And we sort of got the, the top responses and put together the series from that. And this morning, we're looking at this question of how can we trust and interpret the Bible. And this is a really, really important question, even if this isn't something that you've necessarily thought a lot about 
yourself. And so let me tell you why it's important on a couple of different levels. One, for us here at Living Church, it's really, really important because we've got all these, uh, this mission statement and these visions of things that we want to achieve and that sort of stuff. And you can see at the bottom there, it's all built on our foundational values of being biblical, Christ-centered, and loving, okay? Everything that we do here at Living Church is based upon a foundational value that we should be biblical. But the question is, why? What is it that's so special about the Bible? Why would we want to build our lives upon that? And can we really trust it? Now, we just heard from that Psalm 19 there uh, that it tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal Knowledge. There's this sense that creation all around us is speaking and declaring and revealing to us something about God. But in the New Testament, Paul writes and says that while this is the case, it's not enough. He says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's this sense that creation is so vast and so wonderful and so magnificently complex and put together and designed so impeccably well that that itself speaks to the fact that there is a creator of this world. But the thing is, because of sin in our hearts, because we aren't ordered the way that we're meant to be because of the choices that we've made in our own lives, we can't see things clearly as we should. We neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, and instead our hearts and minds were futile and, uh, and foolish. And so there's a sense there in which we need something to be able to understand and know God clearly beyond just the world around us. We can't just get there from our own reasoning. We can't just get there from what we see. We need God to actually speak to us and reveal himself to us in a specific way. And so we read here in 2 Timothy 3 that it says, But as for you, Timothy, who's one of Paul's disciples, he says, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If we want to be saved, if we want to be right with God, if we want to know him truly, then it's from the holy scriptures that we receive this teaching, right? John writes at the end of his gospel that the whole reason that he wrote a gospel was so that people would come to faith in Christ and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. May no doubt about it, the book is a book with a purpose. The Bible has a goal in mind, and that's to give faith to people. Because at the center of this biblical story is this whole message of Jesus and the cross. We're going to talk about in just a little bit how it sits at the center of it. But essentially, it's the claims of Scripture from which we build out the rest of the Christian faith. It's through the Scriptures that that Jesus is revealed to us as the Son of God. It's through the Scriptures that we know and understand who Jesus is. It's in seeing Jesus as he is in the Scriptures that we see God clearly. It's how we get back to the one who made us. That's the claims of the Bible itself. And so this question of how can we trust and interpret the Bible is a really, really foundational one because if we don't trust the Scriptures, if we can't trust the Scriptures, then the rest of the message falls apart. 
And in our world today, we've got lots of different claims to get made about the Bible, don't we? Things that it's full of contradictions and inconsistencies, and it's controlled by the church, and it's pro-slavery, and anti-women, and irrelevant, and weird, which to be fair, it is. Uh, the Bible is definitely weird at times. You've just got to own that as a Christian. You can't hide from it. just got to own it's weird, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Reality is weird. Uh, all different things, right, that we can look at. And so this morning, what we're going to try and do is look at how we can trust the Bible. What is it about the Scriptures that make them a trustworthy document for us to be working with? What is it about this text that's been convincing people for thousands of years to change their lives because of the truths that are revealed into it? But the starting point here is that we have to look at what the Bible says about itself, because it's no good using us measuring it by a different standard. If the Bible is going to be trustworthy, that means it must be in accordance with the claims that it makes about itself, right? So let's briefly look to start with here about what the Bible says about itself. Point one, we've already seen it makes us wise for salvation. Okay, as Paul wrote to Timothy there, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And the reason why it can make us wise for salvation, the reason that it can reveal to us is the reason we can know God through it is because the Scriptures also claim that it is God Breathe. This is the word. We, sometimes you'll hear people talk about Scripture being inspired by God. Think about that word, inspire, spire, perspiration, spire, you know, things coming out, that sort of idea. Uh, that, that idea of inspiration or is actually probably better understood as expiration. These are the words that God has breathed out, spoken out. And so we're reading again, Timothy. Uh, All Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. We'll look at the rest of that stuff a little bit more. But the key thing here is that you need to understand that the Bible claims to be from God. Again, from that reading that we had from before, from Narelle, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The Bible is always claiming to be God's word itself. Jesus himself, when he quoted from it, understood it to be breathed out from God. When Jesus was confronted by the devil uh, in Matthew 4 there, and he's tempted by him, he quotes from Scripture and he says that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, quoting there from the Old Testament. Jesus thought that the Scriptures had come from God himself. Uh, old school theologian, you know he's trustworthy because he's got a cool black and white photo. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says this, The Old Testament sees itself as the written record of the words of God as they were given by God and as they were recorded by men who were specially designated and commanded by God to do this work. The written record was preserved by the Jewish people and accepted by them as authoritative. All right, the New Testament authors, who were mostly Jewish guys, understood that the Jewish people through history had been entrusted with the very words of God. Right? Old Testament, absolutely seen by God's people to be the word of God. But what's interesting is that when you get to the New Testament, you start to see that the New Testament authors see each other and what they're doing as speaking the words of God also. So in 2 Peter here, uh, Peter is writing about Paul. And he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. 
Now, Peter also says that Paul's kind of hard to understand, so if that's been you, uh, that's okay, you're not alone, all right? He says he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Here's the key thing, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. To their own destruction. So the Jewish people saw the Old Testament stuff as the words of God. They saw it as breathed out by God. They saw it coming from the mouth of God. But the New Testament authors, as they were starting to write letters to one another and their teaching, they were looking at each other saying, this is also the word of God too. Here's Paul himself. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So it makes us wise for salvation. It's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I showed you the verse before, and the last part of it is, is that it also equips us for good works. So all of that teaching, rebuking, correcting, training is so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good's work. So the first thing that we want to realize here, what does the Bible say about itself? We want to summarize this all together here. We can see, we can say the Bible claims to be God's word to us with the power to save those who believe and teach them to do good in this world. So if we're going to think about the trustworthiness of the Bible, is the Bible trustworthy? We need to look at it and say, is it doing this? If this is what the Bible is claiming to do, if this is what the Bible is claiming to be, does it do these things itself? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time thinking about reasons to trust the Bible. I'm going to go through a bunch of different ones here. Uh, Just so I know, who uh, really hated history in high school? Just curious. Just be honest, it's a safe place. Okay, good. I will win you by the end of this, okay, to the joys of of history. No, I'm getting shaking of heads. That's okay. Um, I'll pray for you. All right, now, uh, here we go. So first thing, for reasons to trust the Bible, all right, It does what it says it will. And what I mean by that is, it's made a lot of people wise for salvation. Now, you might think, well, how do we know that's true? How do we know that they're genuinely saved? Let's look at it like this. If this really is the word of God, and this really is something that's meant to change people's hearts and minds and give them the gift of faith, if that's the whole point of what the Bible's meant to be doing, then you would expect through history, these words of God would have some sort of impact. You would expect that it genuinely would persuade people or change their mind or get them to see the world differently. And that is exactly what we've been seeing for 2,000 years. So uh, most of these stats come from the Pew Research Center as well as a few other different sources. All of the areas in blue you can see here are Christian adherents, okay, percentages by country. So you've got this big block in the middle where the gospel's not particularly prevalent, mainly through the Islamic uh, and sort of Russian world and, that, and Northern Asia and that sort of stuff, all right? But you can see that the rest of these spaces have reasonable percentages of people that would tick a box on a census. Now, we know that ticking a box doesn't necessarily make you a, a faithful believer, but even as we look, okay, and I know there's a lot of information, so let me just summarize it for you, okay? Uh, these are the percentages of people who, when asked, is religion very important in their lives? So among Christians, how many said that, religion is very important. Again, these darker numbers represent all the places where they say that religion is very important to them. And even Australia over here, of people who identify as Christian, a quarter say it's very important to them. 
And it's interesting to note this and, and see this because we think that here in Australia and in the Western world, we tend to think of the church becoming less influential and the Bible having less of an impact in our lived experience. We don't always, it doesn't always seem to us that the Bible's doing much. But if you sort of expand out your horizons and look at the global church, okay, you start to realize that the reason that it has dropped off in, in Europe, okay, so 1910, two-thirds of Christians in the world were European. In 2010, it's a quarter, and you can see here that the gospel has just exploded in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Asia-Pacific, in all these places where the gospel has gone forth for the first time. It continues to persuade people to believe to the point where now we've got about 2.8 billion believers in the world, all right, including the, that includes the Catholic Church. Predictions are that by 2050, that's going to be at 3.3 billion people. The Bible is this book that continues to have a massive and profound effect on people's lives and what they believe. And also, and I don't have a lot of time to cover this, it's been a profound force for good in the world. Uh, this is what uh, secular historian uh, Tom Holland has written at the conclusion to his book, uh, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, where he looks at how Christianity has influenced the world uh, through history. And he says this, to be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, the ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. Okay, central thesis to his book is this idea that Christianity has changed the world. It's the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of the strangest remains alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world, and in Europe and in North America in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian. Again, a secular historian, not a believer himself, but he can't get away from the truth that Christianity has changed civilization, and he traces back through, and if you really want to uh, talk about this more, we can afterwards, for time's sake, I'm not going to go in there, but you look at all of these basic goods that we take for granted in the Western world now, and you can trace them clearly back to the teachings of the Bible, because the world did not look like this before the gospel started to go out through the entire globe. It was a completely different set of values. All of the goods that we claim now, and that we want to sort of now put in a different box, whether it's liberalism or secular humanism or whatever the, your ism you want to put it on, you can trace it back to the scriptures. So the first thing that we can trust the Bible is that it, it does what it says that it would. It's changed people's hearts and minds so that they become believers, and it's been the result of radical good in the world. Reason number two to trust the Bible is the consistency of the message. I like the way that uh, Barry Cooper has put it in this uh, nice little book here. It's called Can I Really Trust the Bible uh, by Barry Cooper. Uh, I recommend if you want to dig into this a little bit deeper. It's a, it's a small little short read, easy one for you to digest. He describes it this way. He says, imagine a radio with 66 stations. As you flick rapidly between them, you notice something very odd. The songs sound different. Country and Western collides with hip-hop, collides with opera. But each new vocalist is developing the same story. 
Then he says, the Bible contains 66 documents. Approximately 40 authors wrote in three different languages over a period of about 1,500 years. Some of the authors were young, some were old, some were professionals, others were peasants, some were soldiers, others were civil servants, fishermen, farmers, or kings. Yet the Bible has a single theme running all the way through it. It tells the unified, coherent story of humanity's creation by God, humanity's rebellion against God, and God's redemption of his people. It's like flicking between 66 different stations and finding that each is advancing the same story, a grand symphonic drama that grows in beauty as it develops. Despite the fact that these 66 books are written in different genres and different times by different people, they all point towards Jesus. They all point towards the work that he was going to do on the cross. They all point towards the, the gap that sin has opened up between us and God himself and how Jesus reconciles that gap through his death upon the cross. After Jesus had died and risen again, he took his disciples back to the scriptures to show them that they'd all been pointing to him all along. He said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All of the scriptures pointing towards him. He opened the scriptures so that they could understand them. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So we can trust the Bible because it does what it says that it does. We can trust the Bible because of the consistency of its message. little note here on, as we walk through on how we can interpret the Bible. Well, because it's come from all these different authors at these different times and different places, we read the scriptures as both human and divine texts. They're God-breathed, but they've come to us via people, like you and me. And just like we write differently uh, for if we're going to write a blog post than if we're writing a scientific uh, journal than if we're writing a, an article about a sports event and all that sort of stuff, we know different genre, we understand context, we understand different language and euphemisms. So too what we say, that the Word of God is divinely inspired, it's from God, we've got to read it the same way that we would any other text. So we're not spending a lot of time on this part of the question today, how do we interpret the Bible, mainly because I, read, I ran a seminar for us earlier in the year called How to Read Your Bible Well, and we'll probably run that back again either next year or the year after. So we'll, we'll really blow this out, get our hands dirty in terms of looking at how scriptures work and that sort of thing. But for you guys, you know, we want to read the Bible by thinking through its genre, its historical context, its purpose, its style. All of these things help us to understand how we read it well. All right, back to reasons to trust the Bible. Number three, the character of the writers. All right, again, a longer passage of, of Scripture here, but I want you to understand what the gospel authors themselves were trying to do. This is Luke from the start of his gospel. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke claims that he's carefully investigated and gone to eyewitnesses in order to discover what actually happened around the life and times of Jesus. 
So to Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve eyewitnesses. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. When the New Testament authors were writing these stories about Jesus, they kept on saying, we believe this because we spoke to the eyewitnesses or they were eyewitnesses themselves. And there was a sense where they were saying, if you want to go check our story, these guys are mostly still alive. You can go and see if we're telling the truth. Their claim from the beginning is, this is trustworthy, reliable testimony from those who were there. Now, you might then say, though, well, I mean, isn't that what they would claim? Isn't that what they would say if they were trying to convince people? What if they weren't totally honest? Can we believe what they're saying to us when they say that they spoke to eyewitnesses and that sort of thing? Well, the important thing to recognize here is that the gospel authors, the New Testament authors, were looking to proclaim truth without gain. When you look at the, 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 the fate that awaited all of the original uh, 12 disciples, uh, Judas is not on here. He did you know, a different thing. Uh, Philip is substituted here in for him. But you can see, how did the disciples die? Bartholomew flayed. Andrew crucified with an axe. Simon crucified. James beheaded. Thomas stabbed with a spear. Peter crucified upside down. Philip hung by hooks. Matthias stoned and beheaded. Just make sure the job gets doubly done. John dies in exile. Judas crucified. James is clubbed to death. Matthew impaled. If, if they were lying, they sincerely believed it. Like at most, the, the biggest claim you can make of the gospel authors is to say that they were sincerely deceived themselves. That when they said we spoke to eyewitnesses, that we've invested things carefully, at most you can claim is that they were lied to and tricked and deceived themselves because they believed this stuff to the death. And they weren't afraid to include stuff that made things harder for them also. So when we read through the, the New Testament, these are just some examples you know, that, I, that I grabbed quickly here. Uh, you know, they taught things that weren't easy. They weren't exactly crowd pleasers. You know, new standards for adultery. Needing to, you know, talk, Jesus talking about needing to eat his body and drink his blood. That's weird. Maybe we, if they were really committed to trying to get this new faith off the ground, maybe they'd try and make teaching a little bit easier, a little bit less strange. You know, stories that seem to limit Jesus' divine power, why couldn't we just leave them out if we weren't that worried about the truth? Or, or Jesus crying out that God has forsaken him, that's, that's troubled theologians for generations. All these things that they could have left out if they weren't that concerned about the truth. Similarly, if I'm Peter and I'm like trying to put the story together in a way where I'm controlling the narrative, maybe I leave out the part where Jesus calls me Satan. Like that, I wouldn't lead with that, maybe, if I wasn't that con- concerned about the truth. You know, James and John's grabbing for power. Dude, could you just leave that bit out? Don't, just, people don't need to know. It's fine. You know, Peter denying Jesus three times, maybe just one. You know, just. These guys consistently put stuff in there that was, made their lives more difficult, that was embarrassing for them personally. Craig Blomberg in uh, Lee Strobel's book, Case for Christ, says this. The disciples had nothing to gain except criticism, ostracism, and martyrdom. They certainly had nothing to win financially. 
If anything, this would have provided pressure to keep quiet, to deny Jesus, to downplay him, even to forget that they ever met him. Yet because of their integrity, they proclaimed what they saw, even when it meant suffering and death. So we can trust the scriptures because they do what they say they're going to do. The consistency of the message, the character of the writers, and number four, fulfilled predictions. So again, going back to our our man here, Barry Cooper, in his little book, he says this, uh, scattered across the 66 documents of the scriptures, you'll see predictions and foreshadowings of future events, roughly 2,500 of them. Of these, about 2,000 have already been fulfilled. More than 300 predictions refer specifically to Jesus, 29 of which were fulfilled in the final 24 hours of his life. A new little book uh, that Chris Pine picked up uh, recently is this one, The Infographic Bible. It's got a great graphic, which I'm a little bit worried about the colors showing up. Okay, not too bad. Uh, So it's got this cool image, right, where you've got all these Old Testament references and the sort of starting point in the different book and comes over here. Now, obviously not great for specific detailed reading, uh, but as a general idea, so you can sort of see all of these things that are spoken about in the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament in different ways. I'm just going to give you two examples so you know the sort of stuff that we're talking about here. Uh, So for example, in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see Jesus in the final week of his life on the way to Jerusalem. It says that as he entered in, the people were, were praising him and calling out Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. Now, you might rightly look at this and say, well, maybe Jesus knew about Zechariah's thing. And then it literally says he went and found a donkey. Maybe he was just trying to make it look like he was fulfilling it. No, no doubt Jesus was deliberately doing this. But there's a whole bunch of other prophecies that are kind of outside of his control. So, for example, it says in Isaiah about the Messiah that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. So essentially saying he'll be with the rich people in his death. And what do we find happens with Jesus' body after he died? A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came and he took his body and he placed it in his own tomb, the tomb of a wealthy man surrounded by wealthy men's graves. All these different things that we see Old Testament predicts, New Testament fulfills. And while you might look at that and say, well, there's still 500 that aren't predicted yet. That's okay. We've still got time for Jesus to come back and uh, sort the rest out. Reason number five where we can trust the Bible is its solid transmission through time. Here's my history fun. All right. That's right. I said fun. All right. We can have great confidence that what we read today is what the biblical authors wrote. And this is true even though we don't have the original manuscripts of any biblical book. And the manuscripts that we do have contain tens of thousands of variation. I'm still manning this, right? I'm putting up the, the strongest case against us and then we're going we're gonna to deal with this here. So let's look at the first one here. We don't have any original manuscripts of any biblical book. The thing is, When we compare the documents that we do have, the manuscripts that we do have of the scriptures compared to literally any other book in history, uh, the New Testament just wipes the floor as far as how many documents we actually have. 
So you can see here we've got all these you know, famous books from history where we learn about things like Julius Caesar, uh, we learn you know, Homer's Iliad, the ancient history of the Greeks, that sort of stuff, you know, Plato's philosophy, all these sorts of things. The earliest manuscript that we have for all of these things, okay, come mostly centuries afterwards. The earliest ones that we've got here are 150 years or so after the events or the originals were meant to have been written. And you can see here the total number of manuscripts that we've got on the side here. All right. But then when we look at the New Testament, it's within 30 years, some of the manuscripts of the events that happened. Our earliest ones, our earliest full manuscripts come just a century or so after Jesus' life. And when you compare the number of manuscripts that we have compared to everything else, it's, you know, it's off the charts. We don't have the originals, but the copies that we have are significant in number, significant in the, in the gap of time between the events themselves and the copies that we actually have. And here's what's also really, really neat. Because the gospel spread so thoroughly, we've got all these different ways to check if the copies that were being made are likely to have been true from the original. So it works like this. Uh, essentially, the gospels, when they were originally written, Okay, and the New Testament letters and all that sort of stuff, they were shared across this whole region here. And we've got copies of some of the earliest translations that were made of those original manuscripts and the copies that were made from them in all these different languages, right? So in, in Gothic, uh, in Latin, in Coptic, in Syriac, uh, in Armenian, okay? And so even though we don't have the source documents, the absolute original copies and that sort of stuff, because we've got all these different translations in these different languages, we can go back and look at the manuscripts that we do have. We can then go look at the different translations and see if anything has changed. And the consistency across all these different translations is crazy. We can basically put back together what would have been in those original documents with a high degree of accuracy. And this is one of the other things that sometimes get asked is how can we trust the translations that we have in front of us? Well, it's because we're not working with translations of translations of translations. We've got these early documents that we can go back to. We've got early translations into other languages that we can check them against. And so really, really clever and smart historians are able to go back and put together these things or check things against one another. And again and again, we see crazy levels of accuracy with the method itself. In fact, let me talk about that accuracy just a little bit. So it's true, you might see this from time to time, that in all the documents we've got, there's, there's tens of thousands of variations or errors. In fact, you know, some famous, uh, there's a particularly famous scholar that claimed there were 400,000 different errors. But here's the thing. Number one, remember I said before there was like 5,000 manuscripts and all that sort of stuff? If there was a single error in all of them, he would count that as 5,000. All right, so that's a you know, nice little way to get your count up and all that sort of thing. And also, when we actually look at the nature of these errors or variants, you, you'll see just how unimpressive that number actually is. So if we look at the, the whole of the, the New Testament, like all the words and phrases and all that sort of stuff in there, about 1% are variant in some way or another. And if we cut out that little 1% and put it on its own pie chart, we can see that of that 1%, 70% of that stuff is spelling errors. So not a problem, okay? We can still read it just fine. There's just a slight variation in spelling. No concern there. Some of them are, could viably have been different in the original. That's what the word viable there means. 
Meaningful means that it's an error that might change the, the meaning of the sentence slightly, but this is the thing. Even though you do have a tiny percentage there, and again, we're now talking about like, you know, less than a tenth of a, ten, of, of a percent in, when compared to the whole of the, the Bible and all that sort of stuff, even then, none of it's affecting any major doctrines. None of it's affecting any of the core teachings. There might be a slight question, like did they go north or did they go south or something you know, like that. that. That would be a meaningful variation. But nothing that's affecting, is Jesus the Son of God? Did he really rise from the dead? Anything like this. None of that stuff's up for grabs. All right, moving right along. Sometimes you'll hear people say stuff like, but didn't the church decide which books of the canon, or sorry, which books uh, would, would get included in the scriptures? Didn't the church basically say, we're going to pick and choose from all the different things to put together the Bible that we want to? Uh, certainly Dan Brown made a lot of money uh, in claiming this in the early 2000s and you know, movies and all that sort of stuff. Tom Hanks' brother, why? Um, but when we look at the Old Testament, this stuff doesn't hold up and it doesn't for the New Testament either. So the way we got our Bible is, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was basically set by about 400 to 200 BC. In fact, this dude, whose name is uh, Flavius, the original Flavor Flav, uh, I'm going to keep moving. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to keep moving quickly here for time's sake. But basically, he said, there's 22 books of the Old Testament, which match up with the 39 books that we have, because they didn't count like one and two kings. Like they, they grouped it together. Anyway, it's a whole thing. Uh, and he basically lists out the books of the Old Testament. And then he says, uh, For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. Now, that might have been a slight overstatement. We know that there, there were some editors you know, playing around with the book order and composition and that sort of thing. But his point remains that essentially, the Old Testament books of the Bible were pretty much set from about 400 to 200 BC. What about the New Testament? When we get to the New Testament, we've already seen how the New Testament authors themselves from very early on considered that the writings of others had come from God. Right? There's, there's this idea here that when that they were quoting Scripture and they were, that the worker deserves his wages, that's the word of Jesus. They understood Jesus' words to be equivalent with Scripture from the first century. All right? Uh, we've got our man here, Papias. Uh, it's not really important that you know these guys. It's more about the dates. In the you know, second century, he recognizes Mark, Matthew, 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation, maybe some of Paul's epistles as being part of the Bible. Justin Martyr in the second century sees all four of the Gospels sitting alongside the Old Testament. Later on in the second century, my man Irenaeus of Leon, uh, he had 23 of the 27 New Testament books quoted as scriptures in his book against heresies there. And the whole point of this is to say that the idea that it wasn't until these church councils in the 300s that the canon of Scripture was decided is to completely ignore the way that all of the early church fathers were treating the Scriptures from much, much earlier. What happened in the 300s was some other people were starting to put out different Gospels and different teachings and a different message, and the church was like, we don't want people to get confused, so we better make a formal list so that the stuff that we've always recognized as Scripture, it's just really clear for everyone, these are the books that you should trust. Not, how can we you know, put it together in order to complete our evil schemes and all that sort of stuff. How can we make a helpful list for people so they know what we've always regarded to be the Bible? Some of you might wonder about the Apocrypha. Again, uh, going back to our man, Flavor Flav, uh, we've got all these different books of the Old Testament that get 
broken down into these three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That was all set by 200 BC. After 200 BC, these other books start to show up. Uh, Maccabees, Esdras, Judith, Tobit, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Baruch, all right? The Jewish people knew about these books. They valued them. They thought they were important. They thought they were helpful. You'll see lots of scholars even still today to refer to them and that sort of stuff. But they never actually counted them as the scriptures. In fact, nobody even thought about including them in the Bible until we get to our man Augustine, who we normally like, but in this instance, I think he was kind of off base. And he's like, hey, maybe we should include these books of the Bible in here as well. But nobody takes it too seriously. Like Nobody really looks to change the list. But then we get to the Reformation, and our man Martin Luther's like, sorry, bro, to Augustine, they definitely should not be in there. And then the Catholic Church looks at Luther, and they're like, no, we're sorry, bro, we're totally putting those books in. And that's how you get different Bibles today, with the Apocrypha being in Catholic Bibles and Protestants still having them out. It was not an ancient thing. It was a reasonably modern 15th century, 16th century sort of a deal. All right, last couple of points. You guys doing great? A few more things. What about the other Gospels you might have heard of? What about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas? Isn't this evidence you know, that these ancient documents exist and the church was like, keep it quiet, man. We don't want any of that stuff. Well, here's the thing. You'll notice there from the dates that none of these books go back to the actual time of the apostles themselves, even though they bear the names of people who were living back in Jesus' time, like Thomas and Mary and Judas. They weren't actually written by them. They were written too late to actually be in accordance with that. The Gospel of Thomas, when you look at that, like 80% of it is just the other Gospels with some extra bits and pieces thrown in. Okay, And when you look at the character of these other stories of Mary and Judas, they tell such radically different stories and come onto the scene so late that, again, the idea that these were credible testimonies that stand up against the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels is it's just not very compelling. Now, I'm doing a lot of this quickly, but if you've got more questions, feel free to ask me afterwards, or you can come along to the Q&A after the night uh, service this evening. Uh, but let me summarize up with just two more last things. Uh, so on this last point, uh, over time, there should be two words, over time, for clarity and to guard against false teaching, the church formalized a lift, list of books that had a long history of being accepted as scripture. And our very last thing to finish with today, reasons to trust the Bible, Probably the best one, Jesus. So when we come to believe and have faith in Christ, and I understand there's a little bit of circularity here, but if we believe what the Bible says, we believe that Jesus really did die and rise again. We believe that he is our Lord and Savior. Then for believers at least, the truest test of whether we should trust the Bible is how Jesus himself treated and saw the scriptures. Now, we've already seen that when he wanted to explain to his disciples after his resurrection everything about him, he pointed to all these different parts of the Old Testament to say that they'd always been pointing towards him. He saw his own life as the fulfillment of the word of God in the Old Testament. And we can see by looking at this stuff that, that Jesus believed that the Old Testament stories were history. He believed it to be the word of God. He believed that the people of Israel in his time were being judged in accordance with what had happened through the history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus took the word of God really, really seriously, the entirety of it. He saw himself as speaking it. He saw his life as being lived in accordance with it. And so finally, when we think about how we interpret the Bible, we do it as God's word to us. It's to be believed, understood, and put into practice to do good in 
the world. So look, guys, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on application because I know that we, we're going to be talking about this in growth group and stuff during the week. But there's a reason that we build everything that we do in the scriptures. They're trustworthy. They're reliable. We can go back to them again and again. It's God's word to us. Yes, they're ancient documents. Some of